On Monday, August 8th, Tall Can Audio hits 1,000 episodes. Wait, that's still on? Who could possibly still care? And the gang is all here to celebrate. It's euphoric. It's got to be close to Nirvana. It's outstanding. For the first time ever, Maddie, Michaela, Rob, and Matt are all live in studio together. It's happening, you guys! It's happening! Oh my god! Oh my god! I wish you all were here! Is this likely to go well? Just check my notes here. No! At least it will make a lot of noise. Boom. Here comes the boom. A thousand pods and a thousand pints. I don't think I've ever been as proud in my entire life. TCA 1000 drops Monday, August 8th, wherever you find low-quality podcasts. Fuck, it's out of control. Shit. Listening to Tall Can Audio. I have something to say to you! Here's your host. The issue here, sir, is that everyone fucking hates you. Matt Robinson. All right, here we go again. Episode 951 of the Tall Can Audio podcast. As a good woman said, my name is Matt Robinson, coming to you from our studio in beautiful Bytown, Canada. Hope you're all having a great day so far. We are on Twitter and Instagram at TallCanAudio. Make sure you give us a follow there if you want to interact with the show. We love hearing what you guys have to say about uh, some of the stuff we're talking about, the guests we have on, all kinds of things. Whatever's on your mind, uh, let us hear all about it. Uh, Also... Spotify, Google Podcasts, Apple Pods, wherever you're hearing us right now, uh, there's a follow button, there's a subscribe button, whatever they're calling it, go ahead and hit that. We got tons of great stuff coming at you here in the next little while as well. Today, I've been excited about this one for a week or two now, and really, truth be told, it's been longer than that. Uh, This is Michael Barkley, who's got a new book out uh, in April that is called, April's, uh, what, only a day away now? I guess I should be more specific. April 26th. He's got a book out called Hearts on Fire, Six Years That Changed Canadian Music, 2000 to 2005. And uh, when I heard that was the case, uh, I don't know, it was probably back in November or something. I reached out and asked if he'd come on the show to talk about it. He said, yes, but not right now. Uh, It obviously made more sense to wait until it was closer to the time that the book was coming out. uh, And he's out now promoting it and this and that. So, uh. So he's on today, and also he wrote one of my favorite books. I've read it multiple times, as you'll hear during this episode. Uh, It's called The Never-Ending Present, The Story of Gord Downey and the Tragically Hip. Uh, And if you're into such things as well, there is a third book that's called Have Not Been the Same, The Can Rock Renaissance of 1985 to 1995. So uh, certainly a Canadian uh, musical theme. That's that's his deal, but uh, there's a little something there for everybody. Uh, if you want to check those out, we will put links to those in the show notes, wherever you're listening right now, uh, in your podcast app, we'll, uh, we'll have the links in the episode description there, or you can just visit tallcanaudio.com and click on, uh, the link for episode 951, which you're listening to right now. They'll be there as well. If you want to check any of those books out, uh, we'll have the links for you coming up next week. It's going to be a big week, guys. I'm so excited for this. Two big shows. Uh, well, really three. Obviously, Rob and I are here for you every Monday morning talking sports, but uh, two guests later next week. Uh, up first, it is opening day for Major League Baseball. The Toronto Blue Jays will kick things off on Friday. And uh, to get you set, a friend of the show, he's been on several times before, the legendary voice of the, uh, well, he's Sportsnet, ESPN, Baseball, March Madness, Dan Schulman is going to be back on the podcast. Uh, We love when he makes a little time for us. We'll be talking baseball. We'll be talking Blue Jays with Dan, so stick around for that. And uh, the next day, our buddies Graham Creech, Steve Bunda from uh, TSN 1200 and Faces Magazine, uh, they'll be back to talk about UFC 273. That is a jam-packed card that goes next Saturday, a week from this coming Saturday. I should just use dates, eh? Because I don't know when you're listening to this. That is uh, Saturday, April 9th, is UFC 273. Um, man, it's a huge card. Piotr Jan makes his return to take on Aljamain Sterling. Uh, that fight ended fairly controversially the last time they faced each other, so they're going to go at it once more. Also, the Korean Zombie versus uh, 
Alexander Volkanovsky. So you got a couple of uh, title fights there. And underneath, the one I'm really looking forward to, Hamzat Shumayev, a guy I have loved watching over the last little while. He's going to take on his biggest test yet in the UFC in Gilbert Burns. So uh, that is UFC 273 on Saturday, April 9th. Before that, I believe we'll drop this for you on Friday the 8th. Uh, Graham Creech and Steve Bunda will be back on the podcast to, uh, to tee that up for you. We're going to get right to Michael Barclay and talk about his new book, Hearts on Fire, as well as, man, I've read that tragically hip book numerous times, and uh, I've got a couple questions on the hip that I'm going to slide in there for him. I, I had to take the opportunity. He's here. I'm talking to him. He's the guy who wrote this thing. It's a monster. Uh, it was fantastic. I had to ask. So yeah, we'll slide in some tragically hip questions as well. Uh, we won't wait any longer. Let's get to it right now. It's Michael Barclay on the Tall Can Audio podcast. As promised, happy to welcome into the show Michael Barclay. He's got a new book out. It's called Hearts on Fire, Six Years That Changed Canadian Music, 2000 to 2005. Uh, we'll get to that in just a few minutes. But uh, Michael, thank you so much for doing this. How are you today? I'm all right. Thanks so much for having me. Uh, I appreciate you making a little bit of time. Um, and just before we kind of dive into uh, to what you've got on the go here, maybe take a few minutes to uh, to take our listeners through your background because you've done... Um, not just in, in books, but, uh, you've covered Canadian music pretty extensively. Can you kind of take us through your journey a little bit? Sure. That's kind of been my niche for the last, uh, 30 years. Um, when I started out at a campus paper in Guelph, uh, the Ontarian, um, that's where I was, uh, that's where I started writing. Then after that, there was an alt weekly based on all the university towns West of Toronto. So Guelph, KW, Hamilton, London, St. Catharines. Um, it was called Id Magazine, and I was music editor there until the 90s, till 99. And then, um, yeah, CBC's Brave New Waves for a while, Exclaim Magazine for a while, um, and then a relatively more straight job at McLean's Magazine for eight years, um, which was as a copy editor, not primarily as a writer, but um, just continued to freelance music writing. And then along the way, there were two books prior to this new one. There was one called Have Not Been the Same, written with Jason Schneider and Ian Jack. That came out in 2001. And that was about the music of our youth, 85 to 95. So that's when we were in high school and early university. And we, we really felt that was a transformative time that um, was really being ignored and in danger of being forgotten just even a few years later. Um, so the marquee acts in that book were people like The Hip and Blue Rodeo and Sarah McLaughlin and Daniel Lanois. <clears throat> and for us, our more personal favorites like The Reostatics and Change of Heart and Sloan. And then, um, and then I wrote a hip book a couple of years ago, uh, and then, uh, and then this new one, that's my journey in three minutes flat. <laughs> <laughs> um, what is it that, uh, that, that kind of speaks to you about this sort of like, as you, as you kind of want to sit down and did, obviously you mentioned a couple magazines that you've written for, or, or more, I don't want to say short form, but certainly shorter than a book at what point or what makes you go, I, I really think there's something here that I would like to dig in and, and really spend some time and, and go much deeper. And like, where do you kind of get the, the idea to, you know what, I'd, I'd like to try this in book form on any of the three topics really that we're going to discuss here today. But, uh, it's mostly because I don't think anyone else will do it. Um, <laughs> cause it's really, it's, it's a fool's, it's a foolish thing to do. <laughs> um, no, I mean, economically and professionally, it's, it's, it's stupid because um, it's, it's a lot of work and you don't make any money from it. Whereas if you're writing shorter articles, you get paid, again, not much money. That's also a stupid thing to do for a living. But you get paid a, a, a few hundred bucks. And if you're lucky, a thousand bucks here and there. Right. You know? um, uh, so, yeah, if, if I broke down my hourly rate for writing a book, it's, it's, it's not worth it. But um, uh, why did I want to do it again? Because these books don't exist because I don't feel like Canadian music is taken seriously. I mean, before I wrote the hip book or sorry, while I was writing the hip book, I, I met some uh, other writers who were like, Oh yeah, I, I was pitching a hip book years ago to Canadian publishers and they all told me it wouldn't sell. Like there's no market for a book about the biggest rock band in Canada, <laughs> which, which until the singer is dying, like right. that just tells you everything about how we treat our culture. Right. So um, yeah, I just, I, I don't, not even that other writers wouldn't do it, but that other publishers wouldn't do it. I just didn't think it would happen. And this music is really important to me. And, um, and I think that I just wanted it to make sure it was celebrated properly. And, and, you know, I, I hope it is, uh, in these books, I, I'm sure I get a lot of things wrong and I'm sure better writers than me could do it, but I wanted these books to exist. 
As far as the the tragically hip book goes, it's called The Neverending Present: uh, The Story of Gore Downey and the Tragically Hip. Um, I've read it multiple times. Um, oh, amazing! Yeah, I, I'm I'm a nerd for those sorts of uh, things, and and for the hip, I've heard you say in other places that you you're sort of hot and cold, and and you'll correct me if I'm phrasing that wrong on the hip, or there were time periods where you were more into them than others, and it does sort of seem like that was the case for a lot of fans, and it almost seemed like it kind of came gradually downward until the big news that Gord was was passing away. Like they had their big burst kind of through okay. the early 90s. And then you wouldn't say faded because they could still put on a, a show and sell out an arena, but maybe the album started to die off in popularity. What do you think that is? Is it just they've been around and the novelty's gone? Or is it the, the evolution of the band that they weren't playing the type of music people loved anymore? Like what do you think happened? I think there's a lot of things there. A lot of it is um, is natural evolution. I mean, bands... Bands come with all kinds of expectations. Um, and I had this discussion online the other day with someone who was talking about the new Arcade Fire. And, and this was this was someone who who's one of their peers. And they're like, why, why are people dumping on this new Arcade Fire song? I mean, uh, because their previous album was super divisive. I know people who think that's the worst record in the world. I love it. I think it's one of the best things they ever did. Um, and now this new song, we've only heard one song so far from the new record. It sounds a lot like something from the suburbs. So it's like, oh, they're apologizing for that last record. Now this is back to, and she's like, oh my God, what total bullshit. <laughs> this is all like, and it, and it made me think, it's like, I don't think even the best bands in history, regardless of your taste, mm-hmm. I think have 10 good years. Sorry, not ten, they might have 10, more than 10 good years, but they have, 10 years where everybody loves them. Right. So whether you're talking about U2, I mean, the Beatles, did they even last 10 years right. as a recorded act? You know, like, um, uh, who else really lasts more than 10 years? Uh, Radiohead, you know, they've had ups and downs for their fans too. Many people still love the early stuff the best. Right. Um, I think it's impossible. Right? Uh, the well, Springsteen, I, I don't know. Springsteen right? is a solo artist, but yeah, yeah Rolling sure. Stones, absolutely. Yeah. Um, Whereas I think solo artists are given more leeway to reinvent themselves. Sure. So that's the short answer. It would just be age. Um, uh, Also, uh, uh, evolution. Like, the hip did not put out the same record. I mean, Gord Sinclair said, we didn't want to put out up to here parts two, three, four, and five. Like, that is not what we wanted to do. Um, You know, so unless you're a band like the Ramones, where you really do kind of put out the same record (laughs) for a long time, um, you're going to change and you're going to evolve. So, um, I, what I have said before, yeah, I was hot and cold on the hip. There are records I like more than others. There are records I think are terrible. Um, and um, there are records, there are late period records that I think are amazing, including their last record, which mm-hmm. I thought was one of the best things they've done in 10 years, at least, if not 15. Um, so, yeah, I, I think that, I, I think people just come to all this art with the, with kind of unreasonable expectations. Um, so, yeah, and I'm very curious how that last record would have landed. Right. Like it's, this yeah. isn't the way I remember it kind of thing. So I wish you'd do yeah. the thing I want. Or And, and pe- people themselves, you know, they age and, and most people, um, I'm not this way. I'm assuming you're not as well, but most people who aren't huge music fans get stuck in the music they liked between the ages of 15 to 25, right? right? Those formative, the plasticity in the brain, like those are the f- musical footprints that go into their um, cerebellum or whatever. And that's what they kind of stick to for the rest of their life. I'm closer um, to that than I'd like to admit. I do find myself <laughs> falling back into a lot of my late nineties punk rock stuff pretty recently yeah. when I want to feel young again. Right. Like, right. Well, there's a scientific reason for that. <laughs> yeah, no, no doubt. In neurology. Yes. Um, let me ask you, I got two more for you on the hip, just because I, 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 you wrote this book, and I, I, I promise we'll get to the new one, but I always, I, I've had questions for you. I, what do you think the band made of this idea of being Canada's band? And, and we got really heavy on that, on that final tour, right? And, and Gord was, oh, yeah. uh, you know, Canada's poet laureate and, and these yeah. sorts of things. And the band, at times... I'm not sure they shied away from it entirely because they would always play on Canada Day. Um, yep. There are certainly numerous references to Canada throughout Gord's lyrics, but at uh-huh. the same time, they never set out and, and they, they would occasionally say publicly, like, we, we didn't sign up for this. We don't wave the flag up here on stage and things like that. How did they sort of get so entangled in it? And what do you think they made of it? 
Um, I used to have a different answer for this until I realized after I wrote the book that a lot of their merch had Canadian flags on it. So they did. Yeah, no, it's true. <laughs> Someone in their in their management, uh, no matter what period of the career, um, <laughs> they definitely played that stuff up in the merch. That's but um, uh, no, I mean, I think Downey would tell you that he just wrote that way because that's where he lived. And I actually, uh, um, while researching the book, I actually went through every single lyric and counted the proper nouns. <laughs> wow. Oh my God. And there are, there See, are this is why your hourly rate on a book is so low. Like you're spending exactly. your time doing this. Right. That's right. There are far fewer Canadian references than you think. I mean, Gord Downey is not Stomp and Tom Connors. No. That was not his Stomp and Tom had a, had a, had a mission. Right. And that was not Downey's mission. That was just like, I live here. Canada is going to be one of many things I write about. Now, why did they get saddled with that expectation? It's because nobody else did it. Nobody else writing mainstream rock music did it. Like no one. Like Rush didn't sing about Canada. They had an instrumental song called YYZ. Yeah. They had an instrumental song called uh, what Pape and Danforth or something. I can't. Anyway, like you know, Brian Adams never would. Loverboy never would. Like all these huge rock band rock acts would not do that, and Gordoni did. Um, so it's not the, it's not the something he, I think he consciously set out to do, but it was like, it's not his fault. No one else was doing it. No, <laughs> it's true. And, and you're right. I like, so you just, sometimes you're just writing about your life and your life is in Canada and you know, those are the, your, your surroundings or your, uh, well, well, and the flip side of that is a lot of people would consciously not write about it. There would be a lot of Canadian writers who would sure. reference American place names and such, because to us, those places are exotic. Yes. So they seem more interesting, right? They seem more interesting than writing about Leslieville or like, uh, you know, um, yeah. So there's that too. Is it the, uh, and maybe you've already sort of, uh, referenced this with the, the fact that until Gord was dying, maybe there wasn't a, a market for the book. Um, but this was unauthorized and, uh, they, at, you know, declined to take part. Did they, did you did you ever hear that there was pushback that they were annoyed that you were doing it anything like that or that they just didn't want to be a part of it but were fine if someone else wanted to tell the story? How do you think they felt about the book? There's four other people in that band, and I'm pretty sure they all felt differently about it. Oh uh, yeah, yeah. Um, so uh, I know one of them seemed to be quite angry it existed and belittled it uh, publicly. Mm. Um, others I know <laughs> it was all very cloak and dagger, which is just ridiculous. Uh, <laughs> There was one other member of the band, um, and I'm not sure which one, I have my guesses, but that I know would would talk to some of the my interview subjects and say, no, no, you, you should talk to this guy because you were there, you know. That's so, you know, th- there was no united front uh, from the hip. Now, I, I will say that after the book came out, um, that I had extremely close friends of Gord Downey, uh, as well as his brothers. Um, say very positive, nice things about the book. So I, I'm pretty sure I didn't fuck it up. Like <laughs> I'm pretty sure I got it largely correct. Right. Um, and, and having those, having those people reach out to me unsolicited meant a lot, uh, to, to, to that, that they, you know, and I'm sure there are things in the book that they didn't like or might've disagreed with, but, um, but overall I, I received some very generous words about the book. Uh, if people want to check out any of these, we'll put all the uh, the links in the show notes. Uh, that one on the hip is uh, also available as an audio book. Um, I believe the new one is going to be as well. Again, that one's called Hearts on Fire. I'm correct there. That's going to be audible as well, right? Not audible. It'll be... Oh, sorry. Well, not, the, not audible in the corporate sense. Yes. <laughs> it will be available on audible on many platforms yes okay yes. okay fair <laughs> the enough last one was, the last one was exclusive to audible oh i see okay well yeah. um see i'm not sure how all these things work right i, I don't know how the back end I, works i'm so. pretty naive myself <laughs> <laughs> so this one is about a, a specific time and place and um it, it's 2000 to 2005 in canada and you know i i almost ask this it's it's going to come off maybe sounding kind of silly but it's not 1997 to 2007. It's not no. like we've, we've zoomed in on, on a very specific area. What is it about that time that made you think this is where I want to spend the next, whatever, several months or years of your life putting this together? Yeah. Two years. Um, I, uh, 
I was super excited by the music being made in that time and being uh, alive and conscious and participating in the culture at that time, as opposed to say, with have not been the same. I was in high school and, you know, there's a lot of those acts I never saw live because I wasn't old enough to get into a club. This time, these were um, my friends, my peers, people I was writing about on a weekly basis for, you know, Exclaim or iWeekly or um, Kitchener Waterloo Record. Um, I was very actively involved in this time and I saw tons of shows. And I felt at the moment that it was, there were so many amazing things happening. It really felt like a moment, like you read about, excuse me, you read about these moments in history, whether it's, you know, New York in the mid to late 70s or London, whenever, like, it felt like that to me. And also the cross-pollination and the, the social connections between a lot of these acts. And, and this was key for me, as a lifelong fan of Canadian underdogs, the rest of the world actually gave a shit. And it wasn't just, um, you know, it wasn't like a, a, an Alanis or Shania or, or Bare Naked Ladies moment or um, Avril or something, but it was this was like the weirdos. This was not corporate radio music. This was... But this was pretty out there. And this was music that the Canadian music industry either didn't understand at all, like a band, you know, like the Hidden Cameras or even Broken Social Scene, although they did get some some good industry support. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, or people wanted to sign these acts and their bosses were told, no, no way. Don't sign anybody unless you can sell 100,000 records. Whew. And it's like, well, what the hell? <laughs> and... Um, so this, these were weirdos, and and that's what really connected around the world. These were people making music in their genre, whether it was indie rock, whether it was electronic, whether it was hip-hop, whatever, that really stood out, and that's what people liked. I mean, it's the same thing as Canadian film, right? Like, when Canada tries to make a Hollywood movie, it usually sucks. Yeah. When Canada makes, like, a weird, interesting little art film, those are the movies that get nominated for Oscars. Those are the movies that play at Cannes. Those are the movies that the rest of the world looks to like david cronenberg what a freak yeah and you know and he makes all those movies in toronto and well even silly and, things like trailer park boys right where it's sort of like totally yeah like this yeah. it's not Letter high Kenny. end produ- yeah exactly it's not high end production it's not whatever it's just here it is like degrassi right. kids in the hall yeah. like i could keep going like that's what the world responds to and um and so this was the musical equivalent of that and 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 you know it also comes at a transformative technological time um, I joke that 80% of my thesis for this book could just be summarized by saying the internet. Right. But, um, you know, like, like gatekeepers came to, you didn't need, you didn't need radio anymore because there's file sharing and there's blogs and there's all these kinds of things. People on the other side of the ocean hear your music before somebody in Calgary does like, um, yeah, this is the explosion of Napster and LimeWire and like these yeah. sorts of uh, places where you can get your music. Out. It's still got to be found, but you can kind of get it out there yourself and people will share it around if it's good. Right. It's And I think there was a thing where there was so much music being shared that there then becomes a, a cachet in finding the next new thing. Right. This is oh, interesting. What's, yeah. what's called like hipster culture. So I, you know, that old joke that Americans have about their Canadian girlfriend, yes. right? Like <laughs> you don't, you don't like, know her, but yeah, you don't know her. She lives in Canada. Yes. I felt like this was the musical equivalent of that. It's like, <laughs> <laughs> if you want to seem cool, you're going to like pick something totally obscure from a place people don't think of. It's like, Oh, there's this new band. They're from Canada. Yeah. Um, and, and I think, and you know, it wasn't just us. I think Sweden also benefited from that. There were a lot of, an unusually large number of Swedish acts had also kind of broke through at this time. Um, uh, so yeah, I think that the, the, the time and technological history really helped a lot of the events in this book. One of the things that, uh, you, you kind of notice when you're, you're, um, going through this book, you, you were nice enough to send a, 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 it ahead for me to take a look at, but there's a lot happening in Canadian music at this time, um, that you seem to, consciously have decided yeah i'm not going to touch that you mentioned avril before there is nickelback and some 41 and um you know some big canadian acts that are doing well and getting you know Uh canadian or getting play in america and things like that when you set out to do this did you already know i'm really just not that interested in that or does do you find so much material that those guys are big enough they don't need to be involved in this what makes you kind of center on the weirdos as you called them Cause I hate that music. And, uh, <laughs> That's and this is a large, 
this is a large investment of time and, and of passion, and I, I can't feign interest for it. I'm, I'm not, I, that's not to invalidate it. I mean, those people worked their ass off, and they did incredibly well. Mm-hmm. And um, I'm very relieved to learn that I know someone who's currently working on a book exactly about that. Mm-hmm. Like everybody you just mentioned, as well as Simple Plan and like sure, yeah. E.P. Dobson, like that was a moment as well. And, uh, but I think that's a different moment. And I, I do think it's, um, uh, it, it, it didn't fit in with my, my thesis was about the weirdos and, who didn't play the usual corporate game. The, these were people who were very DIY centered, very independent, very like, I'm going to do what I do no matter what. Now, there are some people in the book who did benefit from uh, more mainstream things, like a band like Billy Talent, for sure, example. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I am a fan of Billy Talent. Um, they're one of the few bands kind of in that genre that I, I genuinely love. And um, I saw them um, uh, the first time they headlined the Arcanada Center. And uh, oh, nice. I remember oh, that must have been a thing. I remember Ben saying, you know, midway through the show, we have headlined every piece of shit dive <laughs> bar across this country. <laughs> and to come home and get to do this building is just oh, unbelievable, sure. right? Like, <laughs> oh, beautiful. What a beautiful moment. Yeah. Um, uh, and you know, they're a band that maybe don't fit in as well as the others, but I do think, uh, Alexis on fire does definitely fit in, um, ideologically with, with the thesis again, and Alexis on fire is not a band that musically I enjoy, but I, uh, I really enjoyed talking to them. Um, and I really enjoy how they ran their business and, uh, and they fit into it. And then when you're talking about Alexis on fire and you're talking about fucked up, like Billy talent, like those are kind of, that's an interesting triangle of acts with very different approaches. Um, so the, yeah, the aggressive music chapter in this book is about fucked up Billy talent and Alexis on fire. Um, and I, I, and I, I, again, I do genuinely enjoy Billy talent and I thought they kind of offset those other two acts in very interesting ways. Are these moments related where you say the, the more mainstream one is, you know, it's also having a moment is one pulling or pushing the other like time frame they're pretty similar like even some smaller like default did okay on the radio right like there's lots of mm-hmm. are the, is there something about this time period that whether it be the weirdos or the more mainstream acts that's happening in Canada that has led to this or are the two you know are they are they just sort of coincidental um yeah i i i would say i don't know enough about that kind of hard rock or pop punk sure. scene to really comment on, on why those bands were successful. Mm. Um, so yeah, I, I'm not sure. I, I would guess it's coincidence. I, I don't know if bands like that benefited from technological change in the same way. Maybe they did. Right. Um, uh, yeah, I, I'm not sure I have an answer to that question, but uh, my friend who's writing this new book will be able to answer that when he comes on your show. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> it is funny though, for a while when you were doing the, uh, the lime wire thing, I can remember being in college and that's one of the reasons I'm so interested in the new book is 2000 to 2005 for me is the end of high school and going off to college. Mm-hmm. Right. So again, right. it's a very formative time when you're picking out your musical tastes and stuff like that. But the, you know, when you, you jump on Napster lime wire and just, someone had mislabeled like basically anything theory of a dead man or creed or whatever. It all said it was by Nickelback, right? Or like, Oh really? really, Just because people were uploading it themselves, right? You really had no idea. This doesn't sound like theory of a dead man or whatever it might be. Right. They must've been ripping it. Like, unless you're renaming the file, you you know what you're ripping. Anyway, it was was kind of a wild, uh, wild, wild west on the internet at that point. It always is, I guess, but but yeah. what do you what do you remember discovering? Because I'm really curious. Because I was not a file share. I I had I was a, a pious ethical asshole. And uh, <laughs> um, um, but like, did you as a discovery engine, or did you just kind of like download stuff you already knew? Like, yeah, how, how it, did that work? It, it was a lot of stuff that uh, like around, especially when I got to college. See, I lived out in the country, and uh, mm-hmm. our internet wasn't fast enough in high school for me right? to be able to yeah. file share. And that's uh, another thing people don't realize. That's yeah. a very, you know, <laughs> wasn't easy. You had to wait a long thing. time. Yeah. <laughs> I can remember. Yeah. And, uh, again, like my dad was very, we weren't allowed to have a CD burner in our computer because it was stealing to download music and make your own CDs. Right. So he wouldn't allow us to have one for a long time. Um, but I can remember being up late at night and I would set up eight or 10 songs in a queue 
that would download over our dial-up internet while everyone was asleep, right? And I wouldn't get right. knocked off with someone picking up yes. the phone or whatever. So this is the work that used to go into finding stuff. Listen, kids. Yeah, exactly. Um, as far as, you know, maybe kind of in that time, Alexis on Fire would have been one of them. Again, it's not really my thing, but Protest the Hero uh, mm-hmm. is a band yep. that I found yep. through uh, through file sharing. And then it turned out a year later, they would play whatever you call it, Frosh Week at, at my college there, which was ended up being kind of a fun uh, fun thing. I was sort of into coming out of high school, a couple of American punk, like Anti-Flag was sort of in my yep. uh, scene. So yep. anything sort of pop punk like that, that was kind of political, you know, at 19, you're feeling like I'm going to take on the world and really you're just going to get crushed by it like everybody else. But at the time, it feels good to be a part of that scene. So uh, it was stuff like that. It, I, I'm having a hard time pulling, you know, from back that far, what exactly I would have stumbled across at the time. There was a band called the Bronx. I remember that I, mm, I discovered yeah. on there that I got into for a little while. Um, but yeah, sometimes it was just sort of reinforcing your own. Okay. I heard this at somebody's house. So you go home and download 10 or 12 tracks of it. And it wasn't necessarily mm-hmm. that you discovered it online as much as used it to, to build your library kind of thing. Yeah. But also those are acts that you probably weren't, reading about in no. many places or we're not hearing on the radio. So I'm, this is my point. I think this, this time period really facilitates this kind of discovery. And I think Canadians benefited from that in ways that um, really hindered them before, just because Canada has never been a sexy place. So it's like nobody, nobody would ever open an envelope uh, from Canada and go, Oh, I got to hear this. Like, um, and, and, and this really kind of flatlined all those, uh, all those barriers. Is anybody getting paid? as they're kind of moving across these, you know, starting to grow and they're, they're getting discovered on the internet. Is there any money to be made in the Canadian scene at this point? At this point or at that point? At sorry. that point, sorry, yes. At that point. At this point, no, no, nothing for anybody. Um, <laughs> no. Uh, uh, yeah, I mean, that's that's interesting. I mean, for all the, the promotional benefits of file sharing, I, it did bring people out to shows, mm-hmm. I think. Here's the other thing. There were, you know, there were a lot of buzzy so-called blog bands, um, but most of them sucked. Most of them sucked live because they get swept up in this hype and never goes to see your show. And maybe you've only been a band for a couple of months and then people go to your show and they're disappointed and then you, they forget about you, right? Right. Whereas a band like Broken Social Scene and then a year later Arcade Fire, those were fucking killer live bands. And they, well, Broken Social Scene depends on the night. Arcade Fire always was, and that's why they are still a band. Like, I think that all these Canadian acts, I can't think of anyone in the book who was terrible live, really. Um, uh, they, they were really able to, to back that up. And, and so then they, beca- they would make their money on the road. Um, and people still did sell physical copies. Like, I remember uh, Tegan and Sarah told me they got a gig opening for The Killers, right, when The Killers broke. Oh, yeah. And they said, we would sell 200 CDs a night. Wow. It's like, we would not have time to get off stage and get to the merch table. And there would be a huge lineup. And that's like, you're making bank yeah. when you're selling that much merch. Um, and Arcade Fire, the same thing. Like, when on that first tour, their drummer, Jeremy Guerra, was also the tour manager. <laughs> and, uh, and he would sit, he would play drums during his set with a bag full of $40,000 in cash beside him. Because, like, they were just making so much merch money like people would people would buy things then so yes they might they might steal your music to listen to it before going to the show but then they would go to the show and you would be amazing and then you would sell merch so that is one thing um but yeah and i asked kevin drew and and everybody else in broken social scene like how did people get paid because you guys had many times at least 12 people there um and and you know they ascended pretty quickly to like festival status and festivals are always a payday right um you know festivals have have pluses and minuses to them in terms of if anyone's even paying attention to you (laughs) but uh but they they do pay and um and yeah and everybody was like no we we got paid if i show up and at a random gig and play trumpet like i'll get paid at the end of the night the five core members obviously get more because they're the guys running the show um but uh yeah, there, there was money to, to be spread around between live and, and merch for sure. How, uh, you mentioned that, you know, one of the reasons you, you chose this kind of time and place in these bands is that it was what you were into and the people that you knew and you were covering. How connected 
were these bands at the time. And I, I, obviously I don't expect that necessarily Tegan and Sarah are best friends with, you know, Alexis on fire or whatever combination you'd want to choose. Like not everybody is going to be traveling to the same type of shows together and stuff, but is this a, you know, I, I can remember reading in your book on the hip that the hip would make sure when they were playing a festival, that it was sort of a sense of community and there were no fences between trailers and things like that. <laughs> How connected are these acts as they're coming up together and getting, you know, bigger and, are, you know, are they supporting or are they all kind of in their own boat or, you know, is there kind of a sense of community amongst them? Tegan and Sarah are on a fucked up single. So there's that. Wow. Um, Tegan and Sarah were produced by John Collins from the new pornographers. Hmm. So there's that. Um, Alexis on fire, uh, did the warp tour sharing a bus with Shad, like, um, uh, uh, the electronic musician, Tim Hecker used to live in the same house as one of the Be Good Tanya's in Vancouver. Hmm. Um, like there's all kinds of just weird connections between different sides of the country. Uh, Stephen McBean of black mountain, uh, made a solo record with uh, a woman from Godspeed, you know, like because they met at a mutual friend's wedding, like, it's Canada. The Canada is so much smaller than you think it yeah, is yes, for <laughs> sure. Population wise. Yeah. And, um, yeah, you would meet all these people in clubs coming up at, at folk festivals or other kinds of festivals. Um, uh, uh, there really is a sense of we're all in it together. Having said that, uh, you know, many acts in this book probably hate each other. Yeah. You know, uh, some people are insufferable snobs and, <laughs> and, and don't, don't understand why they're in a book with artist X, Y, or Z. And, and that's fine. Um, I don't expect the reader to like all the music in this book. I, I would hope that all the stories are enjoyable and that, that you really get a sense of the shared uh, struggle and, and challenges. Um, and, and, you know, there's, there's like implied messages in this book that I, I think that uh, like lessons that anybody can take, like all these people are fallible. <laughs> there's a lot of like stumbling and like bad decisions and uh, nothing destructive thankfully i don't i don't think there's any like heavy uh destructive drug use or um but but just in terms of like yeah i, I would hope that a, a young musician would pick up this book and 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 just like learn some lessons like it's not something i i i i uh am forward about i'm not proscriptive or like you know this is why all this happened or whatever but it's like i would hope that you could absorb a lot of that from reading I think that's half the the value in some of these books. Like I, I, I had a friend of mine who couldn't stand the tragically hit, but read your book because I want to know what the big deal is. I don't want to sit down and listen to all these albums start to finish. Right. But I got time nice. to learn about the scene and where they came from and what the big deal is. Right. So sometimes that's, you know, it's a nice way of learning about. Yeah. I, I don't know all of the acts that are that is in your new one coming out. I am looking to learn some stuff. Right. And, and it's sometimes easier to find an entry point this way. Yeah, I mean, one of the greatest compliments I got about the hip book was like that a bunch of my parents' friends read it and enjoyed it. It's like they didn't, and you know, I'm sure they bought it because it's their friend's kid, but <laughs> they they genuinely and they don't give a shit about the trash of the hip. No. I mean, they were more interested in why was that such a huge news story because right. it was a huge news story, um, and it was unprecedented in rock and roll history, like internationally. You know, mm-hmm. um, someone touring with a terminal, a singer in particular touring with a terminal diagnosis. Um, and, uh, uh, yeah, so I hope that, that these stories transcend this new book. I don't think is as, uh, universal. I, I think this book is, is more for music fans. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think my parents' friends will enjoy this at all. <laughs> Especially the chapter. still pick peaches. it up, right? <laughs> yeah. The peaches stuff might scare them away. Oh, okay. <laughs> and the fucked up stuff. Um, I'm not sure I want my child to read it. Um, <laughs> so, so there's that, but, um, uh, I, I do hope that anyone who's a fan of, of even just one artist in this book will, will get a lot out of the, the whole thing. Obviously you had a handle on all of, you know, what you were sitting down to write about. You knew what you were diving into. Is there any one act or one area that as you were digging deeper into it, like that's not what I expected to find, or that was surprising. Is there anything that kind of caught you off guard as you put this together? Yeah, I mean, there are some people that I grew to respect a lot more, um, uh, like Tegan and Sarah. I, 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 you know, I always thought they were fine. I, I certainly admired their their work ethic and and their social uh, justice um, initiatives. Uh, but I mean, talking to those two, 
they are hilarious and so smart and like you just you just want to be their best friends like it's they're just amazing people um and i i grew to really enjoy their music um and uh and again alexis on fire not my thing at all but i really learned a lot um about about the way they did business and the way they conducted themselves and um that was very interesting too and then with music i do like like i I had mutual friends with the guys in the unicorns and um, uh, I knew that the unicorn story was crazy. I had no idea how actually crazy it is. Like that is one of the most entertaining, weird, unpredictable stories in the entire book. And like I said, I already thought it was going to be nuts, but it was like 10 times more nuts <laughs> than, than I even I realized. So uh, yeah, there's a few cases like that in the book and the be good Tanya's as well. Like, you know, be good Tanya's are, three tree planters from the interior of BC who, who, who ride this kind of, uh, entirely coincidentally, they ride this, um, this, this folky trend in the wake of Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? Um, but they're really weird. Like they're not, uh, like the music is very, uh, dour and, 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 and sleepy and entrancing. And, and the three women like were very, um, they loved each other, but they fought all the time. And their story is also super weird. And, and a story that I don't think a lot of people who don't like folk music even know about. Um, so it's important for me to insert, to have a book with the Be Good Tanya's and Alexis on fire in the same book. Sure. Cause to me, they're both fascinating people for entirely different reasons. Um, both very DIY, both very independent spirited, both, excellent at setting up boundaries with the industry saying, no, we're not going to do that. We're going to do this. Um, and, and to, to me, they're all of the same piece. And, and that's, that's what I think makes it an interesting book. Is it at all possible anymore that, I don't know, 20 years from now, someone could sit down and, and write a, a how 2022 to 2027 changed Canadian music. Are we ever going to be able to do that again? Or are we so, centralized now and it's it's odd like we're we're centralized in the fact that whatever i'll just get my music on spotify but decentralized in the fact that we're not ever all in the same places anymore we like could we still see another run like this or you know was that so special because the internet helped it get up and going before it kind of killed it i have about 10 different answers to this some of which are very sociological Mm. um uh, and some are, which are very economical. One of them is real estate and, uh, never mind the energy crisis and the climate crisis and the coming nuclear war. Uh, the price of real estate, um, dictates so much. It dictates rehearsal space. Mm-hmm. It dictates how much noise you can make in your apartment. Um, it dictates, uh, uh, clubs. Um, and then also there's just the general, you know, I'm not going to predict anything, but we just all spend two years on our couch, not leaving the house. I'm super curious if people will continue to leave the house. Right. Okay. So, and, and, and a large part of, uh, like I said before, a lot of the acts in this book were amazing live acts. Um, are you an amazing live act if nobody bothers coming? Like, you know what I mean? And that's what I'm concerned about. Um, and band again, bands too. Right now, amazing time for solo artists not a great time for bands. Like I can count on one hand, the number of bands that are doing well, you know, um, it's really hard to be a band psychologically, economically, it's very difficult and it's getting even harder. Um, so those kind of factors, I think really are, are paramount in answering your question. Um, independent of, of the way you, everything you mentioned in your question is also valid. Like, you know, uh, monoculture and, and are we in the same spaces and how do we discover music that the death of, of uh, like a central music press that we can, that we can react to. We can either like listen to what this critic says, or we can say that critics full of shit. Like those kind of dialogues don't happen. Um, Twitter is not a substitute for music criticism. Uh, far from it. Yes. Um, yeah, these are all excellent questions and only a fool would claim to know the answers to any of them. <laughs> um, but I, I, uh, yeah, I mean, I'm just interested in what the world's going to be like in the next, five years and right. and uh yeah because again the en- the coming energy crisis that's going to affect touring and so 
if only people in your hometown ever get to see you live because it's way too expensive to tour, um, what impact will that have on your career? Right. So, um, and the death of the album as well. Like you just need to have like one killer song that has a 30 second uh, snippet that fits in a TikTok video. Like I, you know, it's just, it's a completely different world than it was 20 years ago. It's as different as I think 1980 was from 2000. You know what I mean? <laughs> so it's, they're just, there's just totally different models now. Do you, uh, maybe this is a silly question, but sort of off topic. Do you miss the album? Like, uh, are you a guy? I don't that, miss it because I listen to it all the time. Okay, fair enough. Yeah. So you, you've stuck with it. There is a, there is something nice to being able to say to your smart speaker or whatever, play the song that I want to hear right now. But I, I find it harder and harder, and I do still do it, but I find because I know how many options I have, I do find it harder sometimes to just sit down and give a full new album my complete attention for whatever it might be, even if it's just like 50 minutes long or, or whatever it is. I always feel like I'm not really feeling this song, and it would be very easy to just hit skip and probably never come back to it. But at That's, some point... Is that, is that not true of a playlist as well? You can skip on playlists all the time. True, but in the playlist I built myself, I know I will come back to it. Right. I'm just not okay, feeling yeah. it right now, right? Whereas well, on you, a new- you also build your own playlist, whereas most people are happy to just turn on, like, just give me the light piano playlist, you know? Or, that doesn't happen to you. There are some days I I don't know who designed my playlist or my shuffle. I Like, who did this? I hate this today, but tomorrow I'll love it again. <laughs> like, I don't know. <laughs> uh, I don't make playlists. I listen to the radio. Right, or I okay. Yeah. yeah. Fair enough. But, um, but I mean, I, I've, I've been on the jury for the Polaris Prize since the beginning, and that's been fascinating. There, there was an internal meeting a couple weeks ago about just, you know, state of the nation, things we can do better. And it's like that prize started in 2006, which is exactly when people really started abandoning the album. Right. And that, that prize is designed around the idea of, of an album being a piece of work. And um and uh, that prize has trouble getting media traction these days because, A, most people are terrified of new music. Like in, in the media, like unless it's, you know, The weekend or something blockbuster, like music just doesn't get covered at all. Right. So, um, so A, they're terrified of new music. They're like, Hawaii Mighty, who the hell is that? It's like, well, why don't you fucking listen to new, new music for a change? <laughs> and, then, um, and then the other problem is, yeah, the album. It's like how many people sit down and listen to albums? Not that many. So, um, I, I think the prize should still exist in the same way that I think the Giller prize should still exist for fiction and fiction books sell fewer copies than streaming numbers. You know? Sure. Yeah. Um, so I, I, I still enjoy the album. I, I look forward to it. I, uh, that's part of my experience, but I'm 50 years old. So, you know, it's, still it's, listening to me. it's become a, <laughs> it's a commitment to me. I know when I'm going to sit down, especially if it's a band I already know I like, but even something that's been recommended, I'm not going to hit skip because you know, when I, when I would buy a CD for the first time back in 1999, I would probably listen to it all at least once or twice all the way through before I would start just hitting on the songs that I liked from it. Right. And so I feel like now on the internet, when you're listening to it as a stream, if I skip it now, I'm never coming back. Right. So stick with it, give it a chance like you would have back in the day. And uh, but yeah. yeah, I have to kind of carve out the time now to, to do that as opposed to, I, I do also enjoy the convenience of my playlist, whether it's a good or bad day for it. Um, but I think music is such a background thing for so many people. It is a lifestyle accessory. It's, 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 um, uh, it's something you can ignore easily. That's you know, true, it's yeah. like, it's like poster art you buy and just throw in your bedroom for no apparent reason. It's like, um, it's devalued. I mean, you know, then this, this certainly began with file sharing, like file sharing is the best and the worst because it gave, it, it exposed so many new things It allowed the development of so many niches. You had access to discover exciting new kinds of music that you never had before, but the result is total devaluation. Right. Um, and, and that concerns me like, you know, every, every filmmaker, every advertiser or whatever puts together the product and like, Oh, and, then, then they come to the music, musicians and say, oh, I'm sorry, this is all I have left in my budget. Right. It's like music is is always the afterthought. It's just assumed that musicians will do it anyway and they're just happy to do it and they don't care if they get paid. And it's not really a skill because you can fix it all in online anyway. Like, you know, it's just like, yeah. you know, you remember when bands had to like get it in one take? <laughs> you remember when <laughs> bands had to be good live? Do you remember when bands had to listen to each other in a room? Um 
Yeah, I mean those. Number those... one, any of us had to do that last one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Remember when we listened to each other? Period. Right. Never mind musically. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, tell us about the book. When's it coming out? Where can people find it? Uh, it comes out uh, about a month from now. April twenty sixth is the retail date. Um, I've learned about publishing that that just means that that is the date they can guarantee it will be everywhere. So some stores have already put it out. If you order it online right now, you might get it next week uh, for all I know. Um, But April 26th is the day that, uh, you know, they, they factor in supply chain issues and shipping to different stores and orders and all this. So as of April 26th, you can definitely find it everywhere and um, uh, you can get it from your local indie bookstore. If you go to the ECW press website, there's a little map that'll tell you where you can buy it locally. You can order it directly from ECW or from all the usual channels as well. As I said, we'll make sure the links are in the uh, the show notes to pre-order on uh, this episode, which is number 951. If you want to look look for that at talkandaudio.com and we'll, uh, we'll post it again once it's actually out in the world after april 26th uh michael thank you so much for doing this i really appreciate it It was great to talk to you you too these are great questions thank you so much for taking the time all right that was terrific um man what a cool guy uh i've i've heard him do a couple other interviews before obviously uh read some of his stuff in the past and uh man really insightful interesting and not afraid you know the best part sometimes is when people just be like i don't know like no one's an expert on everything and some people will just sit there and bullshit you like they are and he'll speculate like he was willing to speculate with us and uh and kind of give his opinion but not afraid to just go yeah i don't have enough expertise on that that is probably something we could all afford to say a little bit more often we should all probably be a little bit more prepared to go you know i just don't have enough information or education on this particular topic to weigh in uh so (laughs) We could all probably stand to learn a thing or two. But man, really good to talk to him. Again, the book comes out April 26th. It's called Hearts on Fire, Six Years That Changed Canadian Music, 2000 to 2005. Uh, Also, as mentioned there earlier on, he wrote the books Have Not Been the Same, The Can Rock Renaissance, 1985 to 1995, as well as The Neverending Present, The Story of Gord Downey, and The Tragically Hip. Links to all of those in the show notes, in the episode description there in your podcast app, or visit tallcanaudio.com and just click on the link for episode 951 and you'll be able to find links to the books there as well. Uh, I can certainly vouch for the first two and especially the hip ones since I'm such a nerd for those guys. And uh, I've already got my copy of of the new one, Hearts on Fire, pre-ordered. If you want to do the same, Check out those links and uh, and get in on it. I think you're going to enjoy it, especially if you're a Canadian music fan uh, in any sense at all. So that was awesome. Don't forget, next week, the voice of your Toronto Blue Jays, Major League Baseball on ESPN, Sportsnet. Uh, guy calls all kinds of sports. He's done everything in the past. Dan Schulman will be back with us, as well as on uh, Friday the 8th, Graham Creech of TSN Radio here in Ottawa and Steve Bunda of Faces Magazine. They'll be back to help me tee up UFC 273 next week is going to be a big one. Of course, Rob returns on Monday morning for our usual sports talk and craft beers. Stick around for that stuff as well. Uh, until then, give us a follow on social media at Tall Can Audio on Twitter and Instagram. Make sure you're subscribed and following along on your podcast app wherever you're hearing us right now. Thank you so much for listening. My name's Matt Robinson, and we will see you all next time on Tall Can Audio. I am unhappy with the confusing and at times confrontational nature of that meeting. I wanted it to go better. I wanted it to go better! Thanks for listening. You can get more TCA at tallcanaudio.com or by searching Tall Can Audio on your favorite podcast app.